welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, Josh. Hello, everyone. Marcelo. Hello, everyone. And TJ. Hey, guys. And today we're going to be talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, outcomes, events leading up to it, all of it. And before that, we have a disclaimer and then announcements. So I'll just blanket state this. We're not lawyers. We're not going to focus on what we think the legal outcome should have been. We'll talk about more of the societal implications. TJ, as a law student, has a bit more of a specific disclaimer he has to give. So TJ, take it away and then take over the announcements. All right. So I am not a lawyer. None of this is legal advice. Don't take anything I say as legal advice at all. But also, we are on social media. Follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on YouTube. And finally, follow us on TikTok. We have had pretty good success on all these, but especially TikTok, as it turns out. So who would have thought? (laughs) Hey, listen, we got to follow the curve and stay up with it. And on top of staying up, look, look at us following our schedule. Live noon central as planned. We did it, everyone. The stars have aligned and we have pulled it off so as always when we enjoy doing these live you know when we can especially on schedule because it allows you all to interact with us leave comments and as a continual push as always to also follow the curve is our merch you can find it on redbubble and find it on all types of things and that's going to be the logo you see behind this like right now and this show as every show we have new music uh thank you andrew hensley over at secret spice studio 865 audio he's got a hot new single coming out titled footprints it's available now on all major live streaming platforms and be sure to check it out all right so the first thing we're going to do today is we're going to give you a quick overview of the events that led up to the trial and we're going to start by clarifying a little bit of misinformation that's floated around i'm just going to go through this really quick and then we're going to park and spend most of our time in what we think the societal implications are so misinformation number one it was the idea that kenosha burned because of the murder of unarmed jacob blake and there's There's two places where this went wrong. Number one, Jacob Blake was armed. And number two, he's still alive. So those are important distinctions that we make leading up to this. Number two, uh, the media label Kyle as a white supremacist. There wasn't a lot of actual evidence that was brought about this in the trial. And I think that potentially we might wind up discussing uh, libel suits if that happens to get brought later. Number three, the three rioters that were shot uh, were white. They were not black. There was one news source that says that they were three black men. That was incorrect. Number four, Kyle crossed state lines with a rifle and then that charge was thrown out. The reason it was thrown out is because Kyle crossed state lines as someone who lived within 30 minutes, but the rifle did not and we'll get into the tricky legal mumbo jumbo that winds up bringing that into the decision there in a moment here. Number five, the narrative has been that Kyle was there to pick a fight according to Kyle and those who corroborated his stories through video evidence and also through the course of the trial. Kyle was there primarily to administer aid. He was also there to defend property and then he wasn't there to pick fights. We'll talk about whether or not he escalated the situations in a moment here as well. That is it for those, unless TJ or anybody else has anything to add. Okay, perfect. So we're going to move into the decisions. I just did that speed debate style uh, to get us through so we can go ahead and spend the rest of our time talking about the decisions. So TJ, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the judge threw out the charge, which was a misdemeanor, as I understood it, for underage possession of a firearm. Talk to us about why that happened and what led to that decision. Okay, so Wisconsin's open carry law has some vagueness surrounding it. In particular, there is a statement in it that says that minors cannot carry unusually dangerous weapons. And the prosecution used that initially to press the charge to the state that he was carrying an AR-15 and thus should be charged with it. However, with the legislative history behind that statement, 
It largely comes from Miller versus United States, which is the Supreme Court case that upheld the National Firearm Act's ban on short barrel shotguns. So the case used on this, essentially, with that language, they concluded that what that means is that you cannot carry a firearm that is banned under the National Firearms Act or is regulated under the ATF. So a short-barreled rifle, Kyle would have been guilty. A short-barreled shotgun, Kyle would have been guilty. Machine gun, you would have been guilty. But a semi-automatic AR-15 that any 18-year-old can purchase if they are not a felon, haven't renounced their citizenship, is mentally well, and meets all the other qualifications under Section 4473, you're good to go, except for handguns, because handguns are explicitly banned in Wisconsin for those under 21. Okay, so it was the judge decided that this was not a good fit. And to me, it was just interesting because everything else was decided by the jury. Is is there a specific reason that the judge just interfered on this one? Yes. So juries in the court system are your fact finders. They determine whether the elements of a crime are met given the facts around. Judges, however, they can make decisions as a matter of law. So the judges can look and see if there's any, if there is no contesting of fact. So the prosecution and the defense all agreed. Kyle Rittenhouse carried an AR-15 in public in Kenosha, Wisconsin. There's no dispute of material fact there. So at that point, the only question is whether what Kyle did was legal or not. So as a matter of law, at that point, the judge is empowered to make a decision on this and whether to allow the charge to proceed or not. Okay. And in addition, the prosecution agreed to drop this charge as well. And you also saw him interfere at the get-go, and I think a lot of people interpreted this as judge bias. When you had the the judge interfere and say that the prosecution was not allowed to refer to the three people that Kyle shot as victims because of the language that is there. And correct me if I'm wrong, but here's how I understood that. The argument being, again, the judge is there to oversee whether or not Kyle had acted in self-defense or whether he had committed a felony. And the, the, the language there of victim, the connotative meaning there means that those people were innocent bystanders, therefore they could not have been self-defense and it would have interfered in that portion of the case. Is that why he did that? Or was there additional aspects? That's exactly right. Because once someone is a victim, that means that they had something wrongfully deprived from them. In this case, their life and their bicep. So if we allow them to be framed as victims in oral arguments, then the argument of self-defense is already over. It's a matter of these guys are victims because they were killed. And now you could say that they're victims of their circumstances in a social context, but in a legal context, there's a higher burden of proof there. And in fact, I actually think that in all reality, the prosecution could have done an even better job without referring to them as victims. They could have called them Mr. Rosenbaum, Mr. Grosskreutz, Mr. Huber, call them Anthony, call them Joseph, call them Gage, give their first names, humanize them. That It's a better rhetorical option than calling them victims because the jury then has to have a face to these people who were shot. But ultimately, it made sense why they said you cannot call them victims. Okay. In the kind of courtroom metaphor, the judge is the referee. The defense and the you know the state, the prosecution or the defense in, in that game are playing there. And the judge is there to make sure the rules are followed. The judge is there to mediate the objections. The judge is there is to make sure that the protocols of the court are followed, um, especially in the case of a jury trial who are coming to the you know conclusion of innocent or guilt. And then maybe the judge 
judge will step in and determine the sentence if the jury does not determine the sentence. And that can vary per trial as well. I think where a lot of people got upset about the judge's bias is like, well, we get the argument. And I think I can even, you know, I get the point of, you know, even saying victim kind of precludes or assumes the crime. But then at the same time that the defense was allowed to come in there and refer to them as rioters, which then while it doesn't, you know, preclude a crime in the same way that, you know, victim does in that same sense of like rhetorical framing, anyone who studies communication for long enough will know the the power and the emphasis on, you know, naming and identifying things. And so people read that bias of even if there was a good reason not to call them victims, well, then people were still left with being, you know, they ended up still getting called rioters by the defense. You know, the defense was obviously doing that to further the position of Rittenhouse's self-defense argument. And so it's interesting that the state lost its ability to preclude the preclude the lack of self-defense by not being able to say victims, but the fence was able to kind of preclude self-defense by saying rioters. And there is always that fine balance, but in the same way of a sports game, people say the ref made a bad call. Well, the judge is the referee of a court case, you know, and especially a jury case. So then going back to TJ's idea of the jury being the fact finder, it took them 27 hours of deliberation and they had five charges that they had to find him guilty or not guilty on. So the first one was a first degree intentional homicide. The second was second degree reckless homicide. And the third was first degree attempted intentional homicide. The last two was two counts of first degree reckless endangerment. So the first three was referring to the three people that he shot. The last two, as I understood it, was because of the crowd surrounding him, because of the protests slash riots that had been going on in that area. There were people that he was, that were behind him. And as anyone who uses a firearm knows, you have to make sure that your backdrop is clear. And it was because of that, that he was charged with those last two of reckless endangerment. So TJ, as our <laughs> quasi-legal scholar for this episode, not not a lawyer, but uh, talk to us a little bit about these charges. Okay. I want to make one thing on the rioters label clear just really quick. It, it wasn't just an evidentiary ruling of you can call them rioters, arsonists, and looters. It was, you can call them rioters, arsonists, and looters if you present evidence suggesting that that term is fair. The main reason for why that was a lower standard there was because Huber, Rosenbaum, and Grosskreutz were not on trial in this case. They weren't having their liberty deprived. And as a result, there was a lesser burden on that. So with these charges, I'm going to start with the lowered ones, which was the reckless endangerment one. So recklessness is a mens rea, so state of mind where the defendant knowingly puts other individuals in a unjustifiable and substantial risk of harm. So the person has to know what they are doing is putting others in harm's way. That's a high burden to prove whenever we're talking about something where split-second decisions are getting made. I argue that that's very likely the reason why he was found not guilty of those two. The third, so the shooting of Grosskreutz, this one came in with the affirmative defense of self of self-defense. He absolutely shot Grosskreutz. He absolutely intended to shoot Grosskreutz. However, even though these elements are met, you still wind up with the issue of, but he was doing it because of the risk of imminent severe bodily harm to himself. And whether that risk of harm was truly present or not, by the way, under self-defense, firm defenses, it's actually irrelevant. Um, it's whether a reasonable person would fear that this risk of harm was was imminent. And this applies both in the shooting deaths of Rosenbaum and Huber. So with, with Huber, he w- hit Rittenhouse with a skateboard and 
a lot of people say like, well, that's not deadly force. However, you can actually see instances where people haven't hit in the head with skateboards and have died. Happened it last it week. is deadly force. <laughs> it happened like a week after this trial came out. Right. It is deadly force. Pure and simple. I, I'd say that Huber's is probably the easiest between the two people who died just on that ground alone. And then with Rosenbaum, you had the issue of verbal threats. You had him on video saying that to other people as well. You had him throwing something at Rittenhouse, which turned out to be a bag with items. And I don't remember quite what was in the bag, but that was when Rittenhouse ultimately fired. And it was while he was fleeing as well that something was thrown at him with other gunshots going off. So again, it's one of those things where it's like, did Rosenbaum present a deadly threat to Rittenhouse? Maybe. We really don't know. However, the question is, could a reasonable person believe that through Rosenbaum's actions, they are at imminent risk of death or severe bodily injury? The jury concluded yes. And there's reasonable arguments that yes, he did. There's reasonable arguments that no, he didn't. But that's exactly the burden of proof in criminal law is beyond a reasonable doubt. If there's a reasonable argument that someone could have feared for their lives, then there's reasonable doubt at which point convictions should be overturned. And also it's important to note that when these charges are this severe, the burden of proof shifts, right? So when it comes to something like murder, it has to be beyond reasonable doubt. And that burden, like you mentioned, TJ, is placed on the prosecuting attorney. In the same way that like when we debate, the burden is placed on the government team or the one affirming the resolution to prove everything. uh, And the opposition just kind of swats it away. And as long as they swat it away enough times, then defense isn't, then it's going to go towards the defense. So I I think that the other important thing to note here from a trial standpoint is that the the prosecuting attorney had a very high and hard hill to climb to meet that burden and actually make sure that it operated within the justice system. So anything else before we move on to our discussion over societal implications? Uh, TJ, I promise this is not a, like a gotcha statement, but <laughs> I, I think it's like a little ironic to talk about like, yeah, like he couldn't be, they couldn't be framed as victims because that would be bad for the, uh, for Kyle, but they could be framed as arsonists and looters and, and rioters because it would, you know, even if it would be bad for them because they're not on trial, you know, because they're dead. Like, like they, they, they don't really, it just, to me, it, it feels like there's really, they didn't seem like a lot of protection for the people who are obviously not on trial because they're, they, they're not alive anymore. I, I just like, to me, the, the whole framing of the situation just seemed very, in a way, it's like, yeah, these people are dead, so what do we do? Like, Which I understand, you know, you have to take care of the living, but these people got killed. And, you know, that we, now we see the, the results of all of this. So Gage Grosskreutz is still alive. In a way, like, the, there was an interest in his end about whether or not he should be labeled as a writer, looter, or an arsonist. The biggest issue at hand, however, was just that... This wasn't a just blanket, go ahead and call them this. Again, it was, if you can present the evidence that they were rioting, that they were looting, that they were committing arson, then go for it. Which the defense used several instances where it's videos of things getting burned, videos of them coming out of stores with stuff in their arms. And for the rioter label, actually the prosecution gave them that because in the prosecution's opening statements, they stated that Huber... Grosskreutz and Rosenbaum were rioters. So if if anything, the 
prosecution kind of gave the defense everything they needed to go ahead with that label. I have no no love lost for the prosecution in this case either. So, <laughs> oh, they messed up so bad. Yeah, they did. well, I mean, it's starting with the fact that every one of their uh, key witnesses wound up providing evidence that supported the defense, and I think that that is something that was very much in Kyle's favor, and in my opinion, goes to actually make it a clearer, but more clear evidence because it wasn't he said she said. It was literally video evidence based for the most part with corroboration in areas where we didn't have it, but between the individual journalists that were there that submitted videos, as well as all of the footage that we saw with the age of smartphones, we were able to put together a pretty clear fact pattern through video-based evidence, which I think made it difficult for the prosecution and easier for the defense to an extent. I think to sum us up before we move into the implications, I'll give a quick and uh, early thesis, I think, of what will underlie a lot of my thoughts moving throughout this, is that if Rittenhouse hadn't showed up armed in the first place, this wouldn't have happened from the get-go. And I think that, you know, needs to be consideration about how people engage in protests and how people engage in the display of violence and weapons. And I think that has something, you know, to do with the consideration of if Rittenhouse was unarmed, then he probably wouldn't have attracted the attention of the people who attacked him and caused him to need to defend himself in the first place. And I think that's not necessarily even like a legal, like interesting, like note, but like this philosophic note of when we move into what we will be talking to a lot about the violence and how this, you know, plays out of the nature of bringing violence, you know, through the status of of having a weapon or to quote, I think a lot of our favorite 30 year old Hebrew rabbi, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. So I would grant credence to what you said that this wouldn't have gone down the way that it did because quite frankly, Kyle wouldn't have been able to defend himself. There might be something to be said about how it escalates the situation, but also it's important to note that Kyle wasn't showing up preemptively and then the rioting and burning of the city happened. He was responding to that largely because his government had not done anything about it. And he's living in an area close enough to where this situation is dangerous. And my personal opinion, he didn't need to be there, especially as a 17-year-old. But the concept at large, as we're talking about philosophically, if you want to go there, is that I should be able to defend myself and have a weapon to defend myself. You, as someone who is the aggressor, is not entitled to a safe space in which I can't harm you when you're aggressive. Uh, And you can make the argument that these people descended upon him because he had a weapon. Sure, maybe. Um, But also, people targeted him because he was able to defend himself the first time. Like, he had the last individual, the second individual come after him because he had a weapon. I don't know whether or not that man thought that Kyle was just stopping them or whether he thought that Kyle was actually the problem. I I could have seen it going either way. But the bottom line is he did go after Kyle. And in that instance, I think that you do have a right to defend yourself. And I think this does transition us nicely into the Second Amendment implications. Do you have the right to defend yourself? And as you mentioned, Josh, should that right to self-defense stop when you go into a situation like this? Because it, it can can, in fact, like you mentioned, escalate the situation. There's something to be said of, you know, the difference between assault and battery. You know, I assault, I say, when I am going to attack you, it is battery when I finally get up and, and attack you. But, you know, and I study a lot about of language and how structures and things communicate something. And even if it is most, you know, responsible gun owners, which is, you know, some 99 plus percent of gun owners carry their weapons 
in self-defense and will never be in the instance, you know, it's very rare to ever have to use your weapon actually in self-defense in the first place. And not saying that like that shouldn't be anything, but I think especially in the terms of like a protest and a riot of going on, I would at least say it is more responsible to respond as a mediator and as a person trying to be a peacemaker in that situation. That's what Rittenhouse was doing as a medic, you know, as cleaning up your graffiti as we saw the evidence throughout the news narrative. But I think, and this is inclusive for the person who attacked Rittenhouse as well, you lose that ability to act as a good mediator through the presence of a weapon itself because it brings the possibility of violence into the conversation by its mere existence. I disagree with that general statement because, you know, police officers act as mediators oftentimes and they do carry a weapon. Like, I don't think that the weapon itself inherently means that you escalate the situation. I don't think the weapon itself inherently means that you lose the right to mediate. Like, again, Kyle was there to provide medical aid. He was there to protect the city, to protect, because, like, up to that point, like, the night before, I think it was, or two nights before, uh, you had an innocent bystander, just a shopkeeper, trying to extinguish the flames. Ryder came up behind him, smashed him over the back of the head, and hospitalized him. So, like, this violence was already taking place, and Kyle knew that to be the case. This wasn't like some of the other situations where he just walked in. It was where he was specifically there to try to help, but he knew that because it was dangerous, he needed to protect himself. TJ, Marcel, you guys have thoughts on this? In principle, like we can discuss that, like in self-defense trainings that I have taken, in fact, we have what is known as the stupid rule. You should not go to stupid places at stupid times with stupid people to do stupid things. And typically it's okay to do one of those four things. It's okay to go to a gas station at 2 a.m., for example. That's a stupid time. It's not okay, however, to go to a gas station at 2 a.m. where there was just a robbery like a couple weeks ago and there's been a string of robberies in that area. That's stupid place, stupid time. You could definitely argue Kyle was at a stupid place at a stupid time. The stupid place was the location of a riot. Stupid time was at night when riots really kick up and when violence really kicks up. You could definitely argue that. Nevertheless, that doesn't necessarily negate the right of self-defense. And in a way, I will say, perhaps the AR-15 wasn't the best weapon for him to use in this situation. But the problem is, it was the best situation for him to use legally. As a 17-year-old, he was absolutely barred from carrying a handgun that you could actually conceal. And frankly, I don't know why there's greater age restrictions on handguns than there are on, on rifles, if anything a 17-year-old should be able to carry a handgun in that situation. And frankly, it would have been much easier for Kyle to render aid. He testified as much as well that if it were legal, he would have had a handgun instead. And it shows how the law kind of put him in a stupid situation there as well, where we could argue, yeah, he shouldn't have been there to begin with. And possibly that is the case. But also, what do you expect out of a 17-year-old who has community connections to Kenosha? It's one of those things where it's like, whether he should or should not, he did in many ways what you would expect out of someone who has a sense of duty to his community. And whether it was the wisest move or not is, one, legally irrelevant. He has self-defense rights as long as he legally can be there. But in principle as well, it's a high burden for someone who's 17 years old to make the wisest decision. I know I didn't when I was 17. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question that I'm about to ask. But when it comes to like 17 year olds being able to carry AR-15s, why is the solution to let them carry handguns and not to bar them from carrying AR-15s? Like just push it to the other side. Like obviously he shouldn't have been there with the gun. I think he shouldn't have had a gun in the first place. Uh, like I don't think making the handguns legal for them would like, you know, it's still a 
gun. But, you know, my, my gun, my opinions on gun rights are very different. I'm going to go from state level to federal level on this. So for state level with Wisconsin, on a cultural level, Wisconsin has a deeply rooted hunting culture. And oftentimes, like people as young as 14 years old go hunting with their parents. They go hunting with their older relatives, whether it's cousins, sisters, brothers. And just as a result, there is that carve out allowing for the open carry of long rifles largely for that cultural purpose. Now, onto the legal reasoning behind it as well. There's not an age limit to self-defense in addition for why they're able to invoke self-defense even whenever they are minors. The age of 18 as being the age of adulthood is a relatively new phenomenon. We had people as young as 15 years old being deployed to Germany and Japan in World War II. These are people who are of the physical stature and what the military believed to be the mental stature to carry a weapon and go into an active combat zone then. While psychology may disagree with that now, it's not ancient history that that was the consensus. And as a result, culture and law is a very slow changing process. And you have that as well. Now, what I'm calling the federal level, but it's more just the Second Amendment argument of it is that one does have the right of self-defense and it is it's relatively universally applied. Almost every state has actually. Yeah, every state has a self-defense statute in the books. So they have different standards of whether you have a duty to retreat or not. If you allow for Gage Grosskreutz to have a firearm and you don't allow Kyle Rittenhouse to have a firearm, does Kyle Rittenhouse really have a right of self-defense in that situation? I mean, just the general principle is that firearms are the great equalizers when used properly to where anyone who is of any physical stature in theory can stand up for themselves. Does that get abused? Absolutely, yes, it does. But this balancing act has shown that it has protected individuals of bodily autonomy. It has protected people from harm. It protected Kyle from harm in this situation as well. And I think I would add to that, that this kind of is determined by the difference between what is your personal responsibility or agency and what is the legal standard. So for example, I agree with you, Marcel, like he shouldn't have been there and he shouldn't have been there with a firearm. Like I would, I would go so far as say he shouldn't have been there. Like 17 years old, I don't think that that was a smart decision to put himself in. However, when you get into the legal aspects of he can't possess a firearm. And this is coming from someone, you know, I, I shot competitively for years and years and years. And I started when I was 15, 16 years old. A law like that would prevent me from being able to carry even like a shotgun at a competition to shoot sporting clays. So to me, the problem is not the law preventing them from having this, but a failure of the individual to provide the actual like logic behind this. So for example, like I think that the, the problem with gun violence is inherently rooted in the individuals, not in the weapon itself, whether or not they should possess it per se. And so the same would be true for Kyle's individual autonomous decision to show up there. I think it was a failure on his part. I don't think it was a failure on the state for letting him uh, possess a firearm in the first place. Oh, there's also some small statistical uh, evidence, and I'll be short with this, of that. And this is always true in, you know, gun and legal discourses, you know, looking at the rifle, because because when you look at the gun gun statistics and gun violence, um, rifles don't really do a lot of the, the killing of people um, that happen. It's very rare that a rifle is going to be used, and it's going to be a handgun. And that's why there's more restrictions on handguns, because they're easier to conceal, they're easier to get into a building easier to handle and easier to use in close quarter situations that you know most shooting events take place into so most you know most most gun violence uh, comes from handguns and not rifles anyways because a glock 19 can shoot way faster than most people's hunting rifles and i mean way faster those little handguns can pump out bullets so quickly not that you know an ar-15 can't but in terms of 
you know, to you, I was talking about equalizer. There's arguments to be made that, you know, Rittenhouse said himself he would have rather had a handgun than, than a rifle in that situation because for a lot of instances, realistically, uh, a handgun is the better weapon, uh, to be honest. Well, I would say especially, um, I, I don't think he would have had the charge of reckless endangerment because the AR-15, uh, just from a rifle standpoint, it's designed to go through. It's designed for long range. AR-15s can be effective at short range, but a handgun, the bullet is fatter and shorter with less powder behind it, which means its velocity, when it hits, it does more damage, making it the ideal self-defense weapon at close range. It also does not endanger as much behind them, the people, unless you miss. And this is where you trade off between the handgun and the rifle stability and accuracy. So I think even though he hit his targets, he was still charged, viably so, by the state, because even when he hit them and it went through them, you could still endanger the people behind him. In addition, it's a lot harder to flag someone with a handgun intentionally than with a rifle. With a rifle, so Kyle was constrained to having something that is at least 16 inches in barrel length. That doesn't include the receiver. That doesn't include the stock. So as a result, whenever you're moving a rifle, you really have to like go in the direction of it. Whereas with a handgun, it's really as simple as just where it needs to go. You can have it from on the ground where you typically have it holstered into what the direction that you're generally going thus causing you not to accidentally flash the barrel at uh, other bystanders. So funny enough, it was the fact that he couldn't carry a rifle that kind of screwed him. And if he was char if he was convicted of one of the reckless endangerment charges, arguably, if he was legally able to have a handgun, it would not have been a problem for him in the slightest. And for those who don't necessarily know, flashing, as I turn, I pass people I don't intend to shoot to go towards the person who is attacking me, who is the aggressor, I still endanger them. Safety 101, you don't point your weapon at something you don't intend to destroy, and that includes moving past them even with your finger off the trigger, so that negligence can happen there. There's an interesting point that we'd like to get into here, which is now talking about uh, the escalation. And I'll, I'll start this with maybe a bit more of a unique perspective. I think one of the ways that he escalates the situation is not by the very presence of the weapon, but by the fact that had Kyle not had the discipline that he did, the finger discipline and um, with keeping his finger off the trigger and the gun control, then he could have, uh, if someone knocks him down, and this was why he was able to defend himself against the attacker with the skateboard, is because if he gets hit in the head and they take his weapon, that's negligence again. So because he had the weapon and it was in a situation, if he lost control of it, it then endangers more lives. Beyond just the presence of it potentially escalating the situation, you also have the possibility that him being there with a weapon that can be lost, that can be recovered by someone who will go and do harm to other people with it, that's also a problem. So what do we think about having weapons in self-defense and what that can do in a situation like this as far as to escalate or de-escalate it? In a place that, you know, borrowing TJ's analogy, you know, like the stupid place with like a lot of stupid, in my opinion, maybe not for stupid reasons, definitely not stupid reasons, but, you know, that's up for debate. The, all of the protests that were going on um, and Kyle there with a gun. Once Kyle came in with the gun and there was like, I, I would call it an escalation of, you know, violence. Somebody was going to die. I, I, I feel like, and you know, not a lawyer, obviously. So I, and I and obviously I, I cannot predict, you know, alternate realities, but I feel like for the most part, I understand the argument of self-defense because either he was going to kill people who were attacking him or he was going to they killed and it has come, his gun was going to be taken away from him. I feel like at, at some point, you know, if somebody with a gun was trying to, I'm trying to picture myself in this situation. If somebody with a gun was trying to kill me, I have very little options. I'm not going to be like, I'm just going to restrain this person real quick. Like, it's it's going to be, it's, it's going to be harder 
for me to 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 analyze that, especially when guns are involved. I call it an escalation of violence because you know the mere presence of a gun implicates that there's going to be like it is. Obviously, you can cause lethal harm with anything. You know, you mentioned the skateboard. People can kill with literally anything, even with your own hands. But having the gun, I feel like it, by definition, means that, that there's an escalation of violence. Uh, and I'm happy to go into why I think that this will definitely repeat itself. Uh, and, and we'll see this protests become more and more like, in, in a way, battlefields. Well, this had been a concern of you and I, of, um, I talked about even before the show started about how this stands a real potential of causing more protests to have more people with firearms at them. And there's, I think, a couple of issues that then stem from that problem. But also what I think is interesting is there's still this underlying idea of, you know, Rittenhouse goes to defend property. But on all honesty, I still find it kind of confusing of like, if someone wants to burn a building and my option is killing them or preventing them from burning the building, I think you should always just let them burn the building because we can build back any building. We can restore any city. There's only, you know, one thing that's truly irreplaceable on planet Earth and that's someone's life. And so that's something that I think, you know, can lead to that unfortunate side effect of, you know, you saying this, you know, might repeat itself in the future is that even in the response of saying going in to defend it's like consider earnestly of sure if it's a building or if they break some windows but these things can be redone and i think that's also why we you know consider self-defense importance because you have a right to defend yourself this irreplaceable value you know on you know valueless entity of uniqueness that is you that you have a right to defend and so i think it's always this interesting balance of like well then yeah well you know if, if you know obviously if there's not you know not people in the building you know but if they're going to burn a building it should always just be let them that seems to be far far better than destroying a human over the concern of some building or someone's business or even realistically just let it be the insurance company's problem <laughs> i think that that assumes one that no one around is involved or getting hurt which frankly wasn't true which is why kyle was there in the first place i think number two this also relates to an interesting question that i hear get posed to people who are in favor of second amendment self-defense and that is so if someone breaks into your home or someone goes after a building you value that building or your things more than the person's life and i think that that's a false framing i think that the appropriate way to frame this is they have chosen to value my things or that building over their own life because you'll note here that kyle wasn't there just to shoot people as they went after a building he was there to defend himself so if his presence there if he's there and someone goes after him he's going to go to prison and he would have and would have justly gone to prison had he just started shooting people so like i feel like this also starts or at least your premise there josh assumes that there's kind of this deterministic or it is being done to the person that that just isn't there like you're also assuming that you're not meeting with appropriate force like kyle was pepper sprayed he didn't respond with lethal force because legally you're not allowed to it wasn't until someone drew a weapon on him or swung at him with the skateboard actually hit him with the skateboard that he went after them so I'd actually argue that having a weapon in almost every situation is actually de-escalatory. I have been to plenty of protests on both sides of the aisle because I'm a wonky libertarian, and as a result, there are issues on both sides of the theoretical aisle that I 
I definitely support. Um, I've seen people armed with handguns and AR-15s at both anti-police brutality and at anti-lockdown rallies. You can see in particular with anti-police brutality rallies, you see violence against them from whether it's members of law enforcement or from members of the community who don't support their message, especially so whenever people are unarmed. The fact that they are armed protesters makes it, frankly, a lot more likely that there will be this thinking twice before a situation escalates to violence from the authorities. Just as an example of it, the people that scared our conservative hero Ronald Reagan into banning open carry in California was the Black Panthers. They were carrying firearms to indicate that they valued their lives, they valued their community over the comfort of the individuals in power. And it truly did terrify people. But at the same time, until they had that major shootout in a Capitol building that they were occupying, which that's a whole different situation beyond just general protest, they didn't have incidents of violence at their rallies. They had people more observing. And if anything, violence against people when an armed Black Panther was nearby was less likely to occur. What happened with Kyle Rittenhouse is the overwhelming exception that proves the rule, in a way. With Rittenhouse, that was whenever spirits were truly at their most inflamed. The cities were the city was burning and people were passionate on both ends. And it just led to it boiling over. And that is one of those exceedingly rare incidents that ultimately does not warrant, in my opinion, the notion that carrying a gun automatically means escalation, especially given the long-standing tradition of people not only carrying concealed, but before the popularity of concealed carry, people open carrying throughout the Americas, and that being considered a civilized thing to do. It's one of those things where the mere presence of a weapon up until recently was almost never considered to be escalatory. To me, it it just seems like the logical assumption, and I can understand to a point, like I'm not going to punch someone. Well, I'm not going to punch someone, period. But if I was to punch someone, I would be less likely to punch them if I knew they could shoot me. So uh, on, on that level, I, I think, uh, like I understand. At the same time, I think it's very strange to, to think of protests where like the only thing stopping them from like, killing each other is the guns that each of them are carrying and it's like it's like oh okay well they have guns and we have guns and so we're not gonna do anything because we could both kill each other in like a second to me it just seems like a very thin line to walk it seems like something that i would rather not have but that's that's just the way i feel like about the specific little situation of protest and like knowing that everyone could you know pop me at any second I also wanted to clarify, I don't want Kyle to be in jail. Like, like I don't I, I don't want the book thrown at him. And I'm actually, you know, we'll, we'll get into it in a little bit. But I don't think necessarily the situation warranted him to, like, get, you know, live for however many years he was going to get. Uh, because it was a self-defense defense case. And he's also, like, 17, you know. I was really stupid when I was 17. And it wasn't that long ago. And I understand. And I also believe in reformative and not punitive justice. I don't, I don't want people to be in jail for, you know, for decades and decades. So I, I, you know, again, this case is a, is a very, you know, it's, it's an exception, but I'm just, again, I'm, I'm just afraid of the repercussions of what's going to come out of it. And I don't think this, these could have been avoided if he was guilty, by the way, I think this was going to happen anyways. I do think there's also something to be said of even with the weapons acting as a barrier to violence occurring to the first place, basically saying, you know, you don't want to start something with me because it's going to end badly. I think it limits 
our imagination a little bit because then we're always stuck in this kind of starting framework of violence is on the menu. And at some point, maybe we would like to push beyond that because we, you know, we look around and say, well, you know, we have these reasonable causes that we need to defend ourselves. And there's a lot of the times where people look at the way humans behave in today's world and they accept it as a matter of fact and they go, well, that's just the way humans are. And instead they don't, they back away from the challenge of saying, no, we can be better because if you look at our history, we've done a lot of terrible, terrible things to each other. Our country used to have a lot of, you know, pretty terrible discriminatory laws in the past and, you know, still does. But even as we are, you know, to quote Martin Luther King Jr., the long arc of history has been slowly towards justice of that, you know, people are getting better. And so I do think there's something to be said, like maybe one day we can dream of a discourse of where we don't need a gun to prevent violence from happening because everyone is in agreement in the first place that we're civilized civilized people here that violence isn't on the menu to begin with but see to me that's kind of a false premise because the entire situation that framed the backdrop of what led to these shootings was violence like i would love to agree with you josh that people can be better. And the vast majority of people there were better and they lived to tell the tale. But like the fact that Kenosha was burning in response to a lie that was propagated by the media that another black man had been killed when he wasn't. But regardless, regardless of their reason for being there, burning, looting, etc. We've escalated at this point when Kyle was there beyond a protest because the protest is by nature nonviolent and it is civil. And it is that protest that we're not going to see people getting shot because there's no cause for it. Once we've escalated to a riot and the city is burning, therefore I'm going to classify it as a riot, then we've progressed well past the instance in which we can say people can strive to do better. The people who did better in society either weren't there or they weren't participating. And because of that, they weren't shot. So like, to me, this problem kind of sorts itself out in that we don't see people who are behaving admirably, as you mentioned, in this situation. They're not shot in the bicep. They didn't lose their life. It is when you go into that animalistic nature that that happens. And when that happens, you best bet I'm going to support the person who was able to defend themselves. Like that's, that's my personal thought on that. In the interest of time and also just, I, I can't add anything to that. That was, yeah. Uh, I appreciate that, DJ. Uh, do we want to go, uh, Josh, Marcelo, final thoughts before we move on to hot takes? Mm, I don't think so, no. Okay, well, me pulling up the coming up hot takes is now moving into our hot takes. So, all right, we will be right back with our hot takes. <laughs> Well, if that just doesn't sum up the way that I control this sound, <laughs> let's let's try this again. We'll be right back with our hot takes. <laughs> there it is. All right, I'll hand it over to Josh. So I think there's something to be said about how violence works in society and the authorization of violence. Like a lot of most people are willing to authorize the government into actions of violence, into our military, and to consign the government to what a lot of people will say to have the monopoly of violence. It's okay for the police to parade around with all of their weaponry and, you know, and all of their militarized gear, but it's inappropriate for a civilian to do so because the government gets to own violence. And there's some senses of order behind that. Like if you talk to a university police department, they will tell you they don't want heroes with guns and responses to school shootings because something tragic could happen where they confuse uh, the good guy with a gun and the perpetrator. And it, even if that doesn't happen, that means an officer has wasted critical seconds in making that determination that you are not the perpetrator and that you're actually the, uh, the hero in this case trying to 
stop the perpetrator. And in those seconds wasted, more people could be hurt or killed that the officer could have used to intervene. And so they're just like, you know, the less firearms that are there in the first place, the easier it is for us to come back and restore order and make a situation safe again. And there's something to be said about that. There's also something to be said about the nature of violence and like protests of if we're asking and trying to make a better world, part of that is always going to be a less violent, more peaceful world. And so we need to make considerations about how we have this line of protests, but also how we have people who, you know, defend ourselves. I think we can also look at different policing systems and how this works, like American police always carry firearms. But in other countries, their police officers don't carry firearms and their police officers are fairly safe and don't get hurt because there's a nature of how those officers work different. And there's special response, you know, teams with firearms and things like that can even happen to protests. I've been at protests where we kind of had the designated crew who was acting as the defense force. And I think that can be part of it because obviously people need the ability to protect themselves. But I also think there needs to be something about pushing ourselves beyond this nature of violence and discourse and allowing it to be something that is available or a last resort when we can no longer conversate with each other and that we would truly be in a better place if it was no longer considered a last resort. So going off of Josh's idea of a last resort, I think that it's important to remember that self-defense through the use of a firearm and the use of deadly force, that is the great equalizer. That is what puts women and underage children on the same playing field as full-grown men. It's not required for them to have the same strength. And I think that it should be a last resort, but it's a resort that is lawful and it is a resort that must be protected. And I think that that's what was upheld through this case was that you still have a right to self-defense. Kyle had a right to act in self-defense. Now, my personal opinion, Kyle shouldn't have been there. As a 17-year-old, I think he put himself into a stupid place at a stupid time. But at the same time, I understand why he was there. Whether he was a community activist or not, in that moment, he saw a severe threat to the community. And in that instance, we no longer see what Josh had mentioned earlier in the idea of a better performing society or people striving to do better uh, because we've already devolved into violence. And it's important to remember that people who are violent have always existed and they will always exist. And if you are unfortunate enough to be in a situation with them, then in my opinion, your right to self-defense needs to be protected and it should be exercised. So I think it's important to take away from this, number one, guns are not the problem and they're not the problem at the protests or the riots. We can give reasons as to why they escalate or why they de-escalate the situation, but at the end of the day, it's not the guns that are the problem, it's the use of them. And when someone doesn't have access to a gun because they're a convicted felon and they instead, they'll, they'll find something else, whether that be a knife, whether that be a skateboard, like you will find a way to do harm to someone if that is your intent. So it's important to remember that it's not the weapons themselves that are inherently the problem. They equalize and it depends upon the use. So in Kyle's case, it protected him. In other people's cases, they've used them to perpetuate crimes. Guns themselves are not inherently the problem. And I would say that at the end of the day, it's still tragic that two people lost their life and one was injured. However, if you don't want to be in that situation and we're going off for the facts of this case, don't commit the crimes. Don't assault someone. Like, don't escalate the situation in that sense to where lethal force has to be used on you. Because up to that point, Kyle Rittenhouse had not been using lethal force. 
And if he had just been picking people off as they committed arson, I would be standing here supporting a guilty verdict. But that wasn't the case, right? He extinguished the flames, he de-escalated the situation, and he ran away whenever possible from people who were chasing him down. He didn't just shoot people even when he was probably in fear for his life. So again, we must frame this in the context of the situation and the facts that happened. In my opinion, the not guilty verdict was the correct one. I already said what I had to say about Kyle specifically. I think it's okay that he was found not guilty. I don't want to see another person running behind bars for decades to come. I wish him all the best, and I hope. If, if, if what he has said in interviews is, you know, what he truly believes, he believes in Black Lives Matter and, and their purpose, and I hope that he doesn't run for office in like 10 years and proves me wrong, but not holding my hopes up. I think... The biggest thing for me here is the idea of equating like the violence that happened against the protesters to the reasons why the protesters were there in the first place. And, you know, you can call them rioters. They were rioting, whatever. That is that they were not only there, like this didn't happen overnight. There was not only like one black man who was, well, not killed, injured. There was not like, this was not like a single instance of something happening once in this country, because we have seen this happen in this country many, many times. It had been escalating all of last year. It's been, you know, massive protests and riots have occurred uh, to cause of this. And it's because of the, the, you know, the societal underpinning of police brutality and how much injustice there is for people of color in this country. I will not sit here and say like, yeah, you know, Kyle was, was there and like Kyle was the only reason why we had all this violence. Of course not. But I don't think that him protecting the property should be held on the same standard of these people protesting for literally their lives and the lives of their loved ones. I believe that these protests had a really good reason to happen. And, you know, even if we've been using the analogy of stupid places and stupid people all this time, I think the reasons are anything but stupid. I understand why they did it. And this will not be solved overnight. But I am very worried about the idea that now, regardless of what happened with this case, you were either going to throw a 17-year-old in jail, or now you feel there's millions of people out there that are feeling that there was no justice. Because the one single instance that was isolated, in this case, of this, like, of these murders, this injury, was left really with a, like, un unsatisfactory, in my opinion. Okay, so my hot takes. So first of all, while stupid places and stupid times are something that you should avoid, they become stupid places and stupid times because of the actions of other people. So when it comes down to it, that it's one of those things that's a personal consideration to take, but we shouldn't be determining the punishment because someone was in a stupid place at a stupid time. Second hot takes, if anything, this situation shows why we need looser gun laws, particularly around handguns. If Kyle could have carried concealed, he would have flown, likely flown under the radar. He would not have been noticed. The confrontation would not have happened and two people who are dead now would likely still be alive. Third, there are more guns in America than there are people, and this is a reality we cannot change. As Judge Schroeder and the prosecutors allow me to call them, we can't allow rioters and looters to be the only people with the guns or with the most powerful means of the use of violence. Violence exists, and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. But finally, we need more Judge Schroeders. Judge Schroeder was fantastic in ensuring that the rights of the accused were upheld. And that is something that we ignore in our court system so many times. There are people in prison who absolutely did not commit the crime that they did. And if they had a Judge Schroeder to guide the jury to understand the standard be of beyond a reasonable doubt, we'd have a much more just criminal justice system. Does that mean that some guilty people will walk? Yes, but Blackstone's ratio still applies. 
I'd far rather 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man go to prison. All right. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Catch us back here again next week, hopefully at noon central, as we've been doing. <laughs> uh, goodbye for now. <laughs>